The preacher can preach. The choir can, the, the, the music team can beg or whatever. The pastor can get up here and beg you. But ultimately, it is you who has to respond to God. And I just pray that tonight we would pray for our own hearts that as we hear about the presence of God, we would even say in our life, I want that. I want to know His presence. I want His presence to be more real in my life than it ever has been before. And I want to crave His presence. And so just pray for your own heart in this. Not just, as we are going to pray for Pastor Alec, but not just for Pastor Alec, but for ourselves. That God would affect us, that our hearts would be right, that the word that is put out today, tonight would bring forth a crop for God. And would, ra- and would really change our very lives. So, dear Lord, we just thank you, Father, for your faithfulness and pray for Pastor Alec. And I just thank you, God, for his ministry, God. I thank you for how he's poured his life into us this very week, this very day, God, and even tomorrow, God. And I thank you, God, that we can have an expectation tonight, God, that you will speak to us, God, that you will challenge us, you will stir us, God. But I do pray, God, that there would be a holy discontentment in our lives. God, that we would not be satisfied with what we know, God, but we would say as we go forward, God, because we believe and know you are calling us forward, God, that we would say we want more of you. We want more of you, Jesus. We want to know you more. We want to experience your presence more in our lives and the midst of this church. So God, soften our hearts to receive. Prepare our hearts to receive the word and anoint Pastor Alec. Fill him with your spirit. Pour out your power and demonstration through him, God, and strengthen him in such a mighty way that his words would declare of your goodness and your greatness. God, that would stir us to devotion and love for you and see you as purely beautiful. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pastor Lee and Kayla, for inviting me and trusting me with this congregation. Uh, a church like this really reminds me uh, of what God said to Elijah when he was going through a pity party and he was convinced that he was the only one left, which, which you can tend to feel that way at times, especially up in Seattle. But, but God says to sort of gently smack him upside the head and say, no, there's 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. And, and, and coming here, coming here is a reminder to me, because you can feel kind of isolated. I don't know how you guys feel down here, but up in the Pacific Northwest, you can feel kind of isolated and cut off from what's going on. And you, again, you tend to get the Elijah syndrome. But I'm so grateful to be in a church like this. It was my second time here and just sense what God is doing. Beautiful worship team led us into the presence of the Lord tonight. And just, again, thank you so much for for uh, letting me come and share. Uh, before we get to the message tonight, uh, you notice there's a, a lot of books I brought with me that are out in the lobby. And I need to give you just a little background to them. Uh, I developed a friendship about 20 years ago with uh, a speaker out of Wheaton, Illinois, by the name of Richard Owen Roberts. Uh, Richard Owen Roberts uh, has been, he's 87 now, has been a specialist on the subject of revival, literally has traveled around this country speaking to churches and conferences about his passion for revival and his confidence for revival. <clears throat> In the process of this, you know, 50 years, 50, 60 years of teaching and preaching on revival, uh, he was also an antique, is also an antique book collector. 
and has a collection of of old books on revival that would be the envy of every pastor and pastor's library here. And he he republished a lot of the classics that are now out of print. And I just grabbed one from the book table back there, uh, which is the story of the Welsh revival in 1904, Glory Filled the Land. Um, and now, because he's 87, he's in, literally physically incapable of handling and processing orders and getting books shipped out. And so I went to visit him in Wheaton and humbly asked him, uh, would he mind if we shipped all of his remaining inventory of these reprinted classics on revival to Seattle and that we would use Church Awakening as a vehicle to to sell them. And what he's done for us is he is allowing us to sell them at his cost. So every penny that comes in from the sale of these books goes to Richard Owen Roberts and their ministry, and it simply covers his cost for reproducing and republishing these classics. Now, here's the reason I believe it's important. One of the books, and I think we're out of them. I don't think we have any left, but one of the books back there is a book written by a group of Scottish uh, pastors in 1840 who did a series of lectures on the revival that began in Scotland in the area of Kilsith in 1839. So they are, they, they're, when they wrote these lectures, they're smack in the center of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But giving some thought to how did this happen, Scotland probably of all nations in the world except maybe Wales, has had more history of revivals than any any other part of the world, and uh, so these these pastors were got themselves together in Edinburgh for a conference just to discuss how did this revival that come about that they were in the middle of, and this book was published in 1840, reprinted by Richard Owen Roberts, but in the very first chapter, one of the very first pastors that gave expression to what he believed was the backdrop to the 1839 Kelsos revival. In the middle of the lecture, he, he says he believes there were three reasons that revival fell in Scotland in 1839. One, he said, pastors and people in the land began to revisit the grand old stories of historic revival. Now, not that we, when we read them, not that we put God in a box and say it has to be like Azusa Street or it has to be like uh, 1949, uh, the Hebrides. I, not, not, but what that does for most of us who are just in ministry every day, living the, the Christian life every day, we, we lose sight of what could be. We, we get so locked into what is now and what we're experiencing now and the battles that we're in now that sometimes we can't see the horizon for the struggles that we're in and we lose sight of the fact that God in his sovereignty but but 
God can show up in a moment and change the spiritual landscape of everything we've been doing and can do in a heartbeat what we've been trying to do for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And what these stories do, and again, I'm not pitching this because we don't, again, we don't get a penny. It goes straight to Richard Owen Roberts. But, but what we, what we want to do at Church Awakening is get these stories in the hands of pastors and believers so that God can begin to ignite a vision in you of what could be. And with that vision, then, like I mentioned this morning, a holy dissatisfaction. And it's important that you understand one of the first stages of revival is a holy dissatisfaction. That's a long ways from a grumbling spirit, which needs to be cast out, right? It's not a grumbling spirit, a holy dissatisfaction. Oh, God, we, we need you to do more than we're seeing right now. We need you to increase our vision and our faith. So this Scottish minister said one of the first reasons he believed for the, explained the 1839 revival in Kilsen was that the people of Scotland began to revisit the stories of revival. Secondly, he said the preachers of the land began to preach on some of the themes of spiritual awakening and revival. And then thirdly, he said personal prayer, family prayer, which was a big thing in those days in Scotland and probably needs to be reinstituted here. But personal prayer, family prayer, and corporate prayer meetings began to focus on the need for revival. And he believed those were the three reasons. And again, please, I'm not here to pitch anything, but I, I would rather leave these books in your hands than lug them back. The, the, the person at the Delta check-in counter kind of looked at me cross-eyed when I put this, the suitcase up on the, on the, on the scales with those in there. But, but please take advantage of those resources we have for you. Thank you. And there are, there are more, uh, on the website. If we run out and you need to, to get more of those resources, we want to encourage you to do that so that God begin, can begin to ignite a vision in you of what could be and a holy dissatisfaction about where the church is right now. Uh, and then out of that is birthed a vision in the second stage of revival of what could be in a protracted ministry of prayer is started. So I'd love to do whatever I can to fan the flame that I know already exists in your pastor's heart and in, in this congregation for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All right. So take advantage of those as you get ready to, as you get ready to leave. Um, I really believe that just like your pastor said when he opened the meeting, that he really doesn't know the significance spiritually of what's going on right now in Russia and Ukraine. And I totally agree with him. I, I've not heard anything from the Lord. But what I think that bears out for all of us, and not just for pastors who stand at a holy desk and deliver the word of the Lord every Sunday, but for parents who are parenting their children right now through some of the most rocky waters. I don't know what public schools are like here, but in, in Washington, they are insane. I, I am literally, while I am so grateful for the few Christian teachers who are left in the public schools in Washington and want to support them, pray for them, and encourage them, I tell our congregation, get your kids out of public school, because right now in the state of Washington, you are playing spiritual Russian roulette with your children by having them in public school. Uh, 
The sex education is, would shock any adult. In fact, when, when our legislature was debating this sex curriculum for the public schools in the state of Washington, they had to put one of those, one of those uh, messages on the bottom of the screen during the debates, while they televised the debates, that this is not suitable for anyone over 18. And I thought, for crying out loud, if you're going to put that on the bottom of the screen for people watching what's being discussed, then what are you feeding our children every day? So, parents, you, we, we need a word from the Lord. And I'm afraid that we've lived a life so busily and so trapped by busyness. And face it, as much as I'm grateful for my cell phone and social media, it's a time robber. And we go from one crisis to the next I find myself sometimes in my prayer times, a, a text dings and I have to say, excuse me, Lord, let me just see you. And then I just start to realize what you just said and you turn the jolly thing off, right? Everything in this world we live in mitigates against intimacy with God. And the kind of intimacy with God where we get to hear what he's saying. I need to hear what he's saying. If you're pastoring a congregation, teaching a Sunday school class, raising a family, loving and, and parenting grandchildren, we, we need to hear the voice of the Lord. What is God saying? And I don't know any way to hear God's voice other than the time and the discipline it takes for intimacy with him. And it's tragic when I read national studies that the average American pastor spends 20 minutes a week in prayer. And not, not that, not that, not that we brag about how long we've spent in prayer, but 20 minutes, how, how can you hear the voice of God? In fact, when God indicts the spiritual leaders of Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 23 verse 18, God says to them that these false prophets have been declaring peace and safety throughout Israel when God was actually busy disciplining them and trying to bring correction to them. And yet God hears their voices. And in Jeremiah 23, 18, he said, basically, I hear your voices speaking to the spiritual leaders of Jeremiah's day, but I've never seen you in my council chamber to see and to hear my word. An indictment on the spiritual leaders of Jeremiah's day. And I'm afraid an indictment on a lot of spiritual leadership today. And we're living in a day right now that is so critical that we can't afford to go by what somebody else is saying, what somebody else is hearing from the Lord, what someone else is saying about your kids or your family or ministry. It, it, things are way too serious for that. And, and I'm afraid... I'm afraid that the church of Jesus is not yet fully awake in this nation. That we understand this is critical hour. And, and unlike the spiritual leaders of Jeremiah's day, we got to be running into his council chamber and shutting everything else off in our lives and say, God, I need to hear you. I need to hear your voice. And I'm surprised in our church how many believers that we talk to that, that say, I've, I've never heard the voice of God. 
And I actually think that they have, they just don't understand it, they don't realize it. Because he's speaking to every one of us. And he has quite a bit he wants to say to us. If we'll just take the time to listen. I learned a lot from my earthly dad. If you haven't picked that up already, probably next to the Lord, the most influential person in my life. My dad grew up on a farm in, in South Africa, his dad's farm, my grandpa's farm. And as a, on the farm, you had to, he learned to do everything. My dad could do everything. Even all the years he was pastoring, he could lay bricks. He could fix electrical issues. He could do plumbing. Uh, he could rebuild car engines. <laughs> Dad could do just about anything. In fact, when he visited us in 1988, uh, the last time I saw him in this country, uh, he and mom came out to spend a few weeks with us, and I had just bought a 1935 Ford coupe. And I took him for a drive in, in it. So proud of this old car, because he and I both loved old cars. And he said, pull over, son. So I pulled over, did everything. Whatever dad said, I did. And he said, you got a bad, you got some bad bearings in, in the rear end of this car. He said, uh, he said, give me a second. And he gets out and he pull, puts the hood up. I mean, the trunk up. And he climbs inside the trunk. He said, now drive. Let me listen more closely. <laughs> right? And so I'm driving, and Dad's lying on the, on the trunk with his ear down. He bangs on the, on the seat, and I pull over. He said, yep, you got a bad bearing in there. We've got, we got to pull the rear end out and put a new bearing in there. And, uh, I, of course, I was pastoring at the time, so I didn't have a whole lot of time to work on the car. So I, I, go to, I go to the office one day, and I come back, and I see the 35 Ford jacked up in my garage. And Dad's got the rear end already dropped out of it. And, uh, but he's in a white short sleeve shirt with a bow tie. And I said, Dad, you're going to ruin your shirt. He said, yeah, but what if people from your church come by? He said, I, I don't want to, you know, so he was very, he was that generation, right? He was very concerned. In fact, while he was staying with us and we, had, Rita sent me to the grocery store for something and I was in some sweats, right? And I'm going to the door and he said, you're not going out like that, are you? And I said, yeah. I mean, he said, what if, what if you run into people from your church? I said, they'll be in sweats too, Dad. <laughs> he could fix anything. But the lessons that I learned from him that have been the most significant in my life, I learned even before the revival that that swept his church and, and our lives for 15, 20 years. I learned it because in the early, and he didn't do it for show, but, but it, after about nine o'clock, if you wanted to know where dad was, I remember right now the parsonage we were in, that parsonage is back then, and the front porch and the parsonage had been partitioned off for a study for my dad, and it was one of those painted porches from the old, we're talking way back there, right? because I'm ancient. And it was a painted red porch, and he opened the door, and Dad had his desk and his books and his little study off the porch. And he had an old threadbare Persian rug. It's just vivid memories from my childhood. And if you wanted an answer for something or you wanted to talk to him, you'd go tap on the door, and he, he'd be on his knees calling on God. 
In the early hours of the morning, before any of us were up, Dad was already out of bed, on his face, calling on God. And I learned in those years that that kind of determined intimacy, disciplined intimacy, not as a duty, not, not as, not, not as uh, uh, some discipline to, although he was a disciplined person, but it was life-producing for him. And, and I watched that all of my growing up years. I was impacted by it because nobody heard the voice of the Lord. When I went to him at the age of 17 and I'd been able to get a scholarship to Lee University and the only family, only member of our family that had ever gone to college and ever left South Africa and I told him I was going to, I wanted to come to this country. He immediately said, son, that's God's preparation for you. Let's see what we can do to make it happen. We fixed up an old car, sold it, made enough money for me to get on a freighter and to come across on the S.S. Louis likes on a freighter, get off in Mobile, Alabama, and take a bus, Greyhound bus, up to just every, He heard from the Lord. He knew what God was doing. He understood the times that we were in. And it happened because of his intimacy with God. In fact, if you'll allow me just one last story that I don't know if I'll be able to get through, but when he contracted esophageal cancer, thank you, Aaron, you know, uh, he got esophageal cancer in 19, when he was 80 years old in 1992. I'd been at Westgate Chapel for four years. I was in the middle of a battle there because I, I wanted to see revival. I wanted prayer, prayer meetings, and those folks weren't interested back then. So I'd beat my head against the wall for four years and was wondering if I'd made a mistake going. And I got that dreaded phone call from my brother. Dad was in the hospital with, uh, with, with, with terminal cancer. So the church was so gracious. They raised the money, bought me a flight, and I flew to South Africa. And when I walked in that little house they were in, he'd been let go from the hospital. When I walked in that little house, just 95 pounds is what he was down to. And when I walked in the house, he was putting his bathrobe on. Oh, son, he said. The devil told me I wouldn't see you again in this life. Wrapped his arms around me. A few days later, we had to readmit him to the hospital. The doctors this time sent him home for good. They said, there's nothing we can do. My brother and I drove to the hospital in Pretoria to pick him up. We basically had to carry him to the car, and we carried him out of the car. When we got to the little house, all of our family had gathered. My sisters and their children, there's about probably 15, 20 people in the living room. And we sat, my brother and I eased my dad down into the chair, his chair. And I had no idea. The doctors had just told him, there's no hope. You've got about a month left to live. And I'm thinking, what's dad? We were kind of quiet in the car driving home. I'm thinking, what's dad gonna, what's dad gonna say? Gonna be some words of wisdom or, so we're sitting, all of us with kind of bated breath and we ease dad down in his chair. First words out of his mouth. He said, son, put on that Holy Ghost revival song. I just sent him a cassette tape from Brooklyn Tabernacle. Years ago, the choir did, Lord, send a Holy Ghost revival. He said, put that Holy Ghost revival song on. So I went to the tape deck and put that song on. 
And as the song played, a spirit of intercession came on him. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but he doubled over and began to groan. Oh, God, send revival to America. Send revival to Africa. Oh, God. Oh, God. Doubled over. At one point, it was calling on God so severely that he started rolling off of the off of the chair and my brother and I braced his fall he went down on his knees on the carpet and he prayed for Westgate Chapel and he prayed for me he prayed for the kids he prayed for the church 45 minutes when his when he was facing the end of the, his life the one thing he wanted to do is get close to God One last story. I know I told you that last one was the last one, but I lied. (laughs) I came home after three weeks, and then I got the call. He moved in. He and my mom moved in with my brother. And this will make sense because I told you about the bow tie story. But dad, y'all had to be dressed. Yeah, it had to be. I remember when, when after my dad had died and we brought mom back to Seattle and we were having glorious prayer meetings and, and I, my, my bro, my sons-in-law had talked me into hanging my, let my shirt hang out, you know, so I had my shirt out. We had a great, a great prayer meeting. And after the prayer meeting, I see mom coming down the center aisle with her walker, you know. She heads right for me. She said, wonderful. Wonderful prayer meeting, son, but tuck your shirt in. Jesus. <laughs> so, on the morning that dad died, he got up and he said to my brother, I want you to get my suit on. So, Lawrence and my mom did the best they could and got his shirt and his suit on, got his tie, he wanted his tie on, got his tie on. And Lawrence, my brother, said as soon as he was fully dressed and they'd swung his legs out over the side of the bed, he looked up in the corner of the bedroom. And he said, Jesus. And he was gone. He walked in an intimacy with God that I envy. And I try to emulate him, probably not as disciplined and rigorous as he is, but proximity to God, dear saints of God, proximity to God is the only answer. I look at the precious young people in this congregation and we're in the the gym for the morning sessions and I think of all the decisions that they have ahead of them, life-changing decisions. And some of my early decisions, especially the the wife that I married, uh, I was just interested in one thing. She was drop-dead gorgeous. She had that bottom lip that was kind of curled down a little bit like that. I was smitten from the time I saw her. And I knew I was going to marry her, but whoa, did I ever make the right decision. Not because I was drawing near and seeking God which I would counsel young people to do, but I'm sure it's because my dad, my mom had been interceding for me for that crucial decision. So many decisions to make, young people. So many places to go and things to do. But you don't want to do any of them without intimacy with God. 
So I want you to take your Bibles with me for just a second. And let me just kind of, let me accentuate this. What I've just shared with you about my dad. And forgive me for for uh, getting emotional and for just having a bunch of personal stories today. But from Scripture, I want you to look just with me for a minute at the life of Joshua. Here's a young leader. Moses' assistant, the best we can tell, right at the old man's side, all through Joshua's life. From the exodus all the way to entering in the promised land. And when once the baton gets passed and it's Joshua's turn to lead, it's so evident he leads with excellence. He steps into, I don't know anyone that would have wanted to step into Moses' shoes, but Joshua steps right into Moses' shoes. But we learn his secret earlier in his life when Moses is given instruction by God for the tent of meeting that first was built and assembled at the base of Mount Sinai. And then they carried it with them all through their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But the key message that I see in this whole story is that when you wanted to worship, you went to the tent of meeting. When you wanted to hear the voice of God, you went to the tent of meeting. In fact, it says in several places, but particularly in Exodus 33, that Moses would frequently go into the tent of meeting because nobody had ministry and leadership challenges like Moses did. And he'd obviously discovered in his in his 40-day stints with the Lord up on Mount Sinai that the only way for him to lead was for him to hear. And the only way for him to hear was to be in close proximity. And Joshua picks that up. We had a bunch of young pastors with us in Cedar Rapids, I mean, in, in, in Seattle. And I can only pray that, that they pick this up from my leadership and some of the other older pastors that are on staff with us. That there's no way that we can hear from God for our ministry other than intimacy with God and proximity to God. And verse 17 of Exodus 33 says that Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, a young man, would not depart from the tent. In other, in other words, Moses would go in to the tent and receive from the Lord what he was looking for. But as soon as he left to get on with the business, Joshua, somehow there was something in Joshua that the Holy Spirit had put there for a hunger for and an affinity for intimacy with God to hear the voice of God. And even after Moses had left the tent, Joshua stays behind, not even realizing that what was being shaped in him at the at that time were leadership skills that you wouldn't get from a seminar or a book, but things that he got from the very presence of God. But the main passage I want to just dwell on for a few moments with you tonight is found in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3. It's really, it's really a marvelous picture of this very lesson. Samuel, as you know, is a young boy Hannah has travailed for him. And thanks to Hannah's travail, she didn't only get a son, we got a prophet. 
which says something to the, to the, to the women of the house of faith. Their travail doesn't just bring forth sons and daughters. It brings forth the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Thanks to Hannah's travailing with the Lord, Samuel is a young boy that she takes back according to her promise to be in the house of the Lord and to grow up around the presence of the Lord. And he becomes a young prophet. We learn later he actually is the last in the line of judges being prepared for a significant life of ministry to God's people during a time, once again, after the judges, when Israel is in horrible mess. In fact, the book of Judges ends with the statement, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And forgive me for just harking back to this, but just to show you, if it's not here in Louisiana, how urgent these days are. I saw one of the African-American pastors, who's a good friend of mine in the heart of Seattle, sent me a coloring book given to kindergartners in the Seattle school district where you color in transvestites. And the caption in the bottom of the coloring book for our kindergarten children is that you can be whatever you want to be. If you want to be a boy, you can be a boy. If you want to be a girl, you can be a boy. Don't let anybody tell you anything differently. Kindergarten, right? And so everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And because of it, our nation is in a mess right now. And what we need desperately in the middle of this mess is young men like Samuel. Who somehow, and the text doesn't tell us how this happened. Because all of the priests around him were offering their services to the highest bidder. Remember the last couple of chapters of Judges where that Levite has a concubine that that is given in prostitution to the men of the town and he cuts her up because she's delivered dead at the door. Just horrible, horrible stuff that you wouldn't even imagine happens. And that's what happens when a nation decides to do what's right in their own eyes instead of following the ways of God. And I'm afraid the church has stood on the sidelines of all of this with our hands in our pockets. And under the guise of not wanting to be political, and I'm not suggesting we be political, but under the, under the, 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 the metrics of not being political, we, we as pastors are refusing to say anything. But God's raising up Samuels, I'm convinced of it. And in the darkest days of Israel's history coming out of the judges, the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle is, is, is in Shiloh. And again, forgive me, I don't know if, if any of you have been to Israel, but another one of the favorite places I have is to go to Shiloh, which is in the West Bank, so it's a little dangerous. You have to go in a bulletproof van to get there, but, but I don't care. You stand on the top. Shiloh is on the top of a little hill, surrounded, probably 500-foot hill, surrounded by taller hills, so you can see how, how God... Uh, chose it for his presence to dwell. And for the first some 300 years, God's presence dwelt in Shiloh. And, and Samuel inherits this experience. Samuel steps into this because he's at Shiloh. And it's interesting, when you go see Shiloh, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, a bedrock hill. In other words, there's very little, if any, soil on the hill. But there's an area that's been chiseled out of the rock, and you can see the chisel marks in the rock that are exactly the dimensions of the curtains around the tabernacle. 
And plus the artifacts that they've discovered, the archaeologists have discovered, they know for a fact that's where, that's where the tent, that's where Joshua pitched the tent after Israel settled into the promised land. And again, I mentioned this today, and it's because maybe I'm a visual learner, but I can't help but put myself when I stand there at the times when the presence of God was there and the glory of God rested in there as a cloud between the wings of the cherubim. And it was so holy, even the priests, high priest only went into the Holy of Holies once a year and the showbread was at in the out of holy part to, to, to teach us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from from the mouth of the Father, and the golden lampstand was there to let us know that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And I just love thinking of the imagery. It was just a shadow, I know, but when you're there and can see where all this happens, something happens in your heart. And you stand there, but in Samuel's days, the priests are giving themselves out to whoever paid the highest price. And even... Even Eli, the high priest's sons, were prostituting themselves with women that were there to serve at the tabernacle, taking all the food that was that belonged to other people. Uh, whatever their benefactors wanted to hear, they ran around the country with mistresses in tow. And tragically, the American church is seeing this kind of thing happen right now. And when the days were the darkest... God set about to raise up for himself a prophet. And we don't know what was built into him. He wouldn't have learned this from Eli's sons. He wouldn't have learned this from Eli himself. So we don't know exactly what brought it about. But when Samuel is put in that place of ministry, the priority of God's presence is what absolutely captures his heart. I want you to know it's the priority of God's presence that changes history. It will change America's history. As far gone as we seem to be now, as far gone as the church seems to be in way too many parts of this country, it's the presence of God in the, in the hearts of pastors and congregants that will change this church, this, this country. And sometimes it'll happen overnight. And the word of the Lord, verse 1 of chapter 3 says, was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Again, I watch, I'm on social media some, just to find out what other pastors are doing, what's happening in other churches. I'm just curious. And what shocked me is when churches did finally get back together again, and pastors went right back to preaching warmed over psychology. Instead of calling the people of God to seek God and to draw near and to get in his presence, we went right back to what seemed to fill the pews before COVID. And I want you to know it's not going to fill the pews anymore. And when the story is about to start in verse 2 of chapter 3, 1 Samuel, Eli, the priest, is lying down in his usual place. Boy, I, I get a lot out of that. Where's the man of God? Where's the woman of God in this day and age that we live in? They have a comfortable place. And while the nation is literally going to hell all around us, they're lying down and asleep 
in a comfortable place. It was his usual place. It must have been, we learned in other passages, that he was grossly overweight from, from overfeeding. And so how, whatever that represented, I don't know. But there was a usual place. And what I don't want to do, even in ministry right now, is fall back to a familiar usual place. Because A.W. Tozer says that a rut is really just a grave with the ends knocked out. So we can't afford right now. Even, please, if I'm not even speaking to pastors, but to believers. You're responsible for the spiritual stewardship of your family. Moms and dads, they are your charge. The church does everything we can to try to convey the value of God and His presence and power to our children. But moms and dads, that's your primary responsibility. And so Eli is lying down in his usual place, fast asleep. They'd become ministry professionals. In it for the money, for the recognition, for the fame, the power it gave them over people from whom they extorted money and food. So it's no wonder, verse 1 says, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. I can't think of anything worse I know it doesn't happen in this church because I know the heart of your pastor. But I can't think of any place, being at any place right now where the word of the Lord is rare. Preaching going on, but the word of the Lord is rare. It was rare because nobody was close enough to hear. Not even Eli. Nobody was interested in what God was saying. Nobody interested in God's presence and being close to God except one young man. Oh, I wish I knew what did this in him. I wish I knew what triggered this. Maybe it was his mom's raising in his home that did this. But while Eli is lying down in his usual place, we read... Oh, let me just back up, sorry. Uh, uh, Eli, the text about Eli tells us some significant things. He was carelessly ignoring the flagrant sins of his sons. And interesting, we're living in a day right now where pastors are actively being told, don't preach on sin. Don't preach on repentance. I'm not talking about negative preaching now, but I'm talking about the fact we're calling people to get saved. Most of them don't know what they're being saved from. Because we've not taken the time to talk about, about sin and the judgment of God. So that they will flee the wrath of God to come into the arms of a Savior who's waiting to love on them and redeem them and save them. His eyesight is failing, which means he was blind to everything going on around him. Wow, that's happening today. And even though the lamp of God had not gone out yet, chapter 3 and verse 3. In other words, while there was still work to be done. The lamp of God was still lit. I don't believe God has removed his lamp from the American church. Like he threatened to do to the church in in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. I don't believe the lamp. I believe the lamp is still there. It just needs to be tended. I believe the lamp is still there. It just needs to be recognized. I believe the lamp of God's presence and his power and his glory is still there. We just need to embrace it and like Samuel run towards it. What an indictment of the pastors of our day we find in the life of Eli. So where's young Samuel while Eli is fast asleep? Sleeping off the indigestion of the last steak dinner he had. And it says in verse 3, Before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, Samuel was lying down where the ark of God was. 
We learn in other passages that no one was even allowed in there in the Holy of Holies. But it doesn't seem to bother Samuel. He just wants to be close to God. I just want to be close to you. He didn't quite realize it at the time, but everything that lay ahead of him, think of all of Samuel's ministry. Think about the kings that he was going to anoint. Think about the purposes of God that he was going to have a hand in for the entire nation. All of this lay ahead of him. Think of how he withstood the darkness and evil of the day. All of that was ahead of him. He didn't even realize it. He just knew as a young man, I've got to get close to the presence of God. So much so that when God speaks up and says, Samuel, Samuel doesn't realize that it's God's voice and he jumps up and he runs into Eli and he said, did you call me? You know the story, right? And Eli said, no, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So he goes back to bed, lies down quiet. He lies down in the presence of the Lord, so close to God in the Holy of Holies, right next to the Ark of the Covenant. Wouldn't you like to have seen the Ark of the Covenant, right? I mean, I even got a thrill out of watching that old, uh, what was that what was that old movie about the recovery of the Ark of the Covenant? And while the Nazi soldiers are prying the lid off, the archaeologist has the presence of mind to say, don't look inside, <laughs> right? Yes, that's, that's, that's the Ark. That's where God dwelt. And Samuel is lying down next to the ark. He falls asleep again. And the voice again says to him, Samuel, he jumps up. He runs to Eli. Eli, it's got to be you. This happens three times. Verse 7 says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. So he did not put two and two together. One of our pastors in Seattle has written an incredible curriculum. We call it basic training. And basically there are two things that he teaches in a 13-week course. One, how to hear the voice of God. And we're not talking about any weirdness or fun, just how to hear the voice of God. Through the Word, in worship, in when you're outside in nature, when you're hunting, when, when, wherever, just how to hear the voice of God. And the second half of the course is spiritual warfare. And, and we, we, we run a hundred people through that course Every time Pastor Ron teaches it, because it's so vital that right now people are so close to God, they can hear his voice and identify his voice. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He just knew enough to get close. So the third time he jumps up and runs into Eli. And now Eli at least has the presence of mind to say, uh, go and lie down. And if he calls you. Say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Then when God, when Samuel goes back and says, speak, Lord, this is what God says. See, oh, this is a word for America right now. See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. And for the next several decades, Samuel finds himself smacked in the center of God's purposes for an entire nation. All because he was determined to get close enough to hear. And I feel like one of the responsibilities God has given me to talk to pastors and to believers wherever I have the opportunity is to say, you got to get close enough to hear. You say, well, how do you do that? Listen, 
I, I hope I'm not offending anybody here tonight when I say don't get the read through the Bible in a year plan. Don't do that. Because if you're like me, you're behind by Friday in the first week. <laughs> and then you either have to lie to your wife that you're on top of it, or you have to speed read. And I don't go into this word to speed read or to finish somebody's plan. Yeah, I've got a, I got a plan for how I read scripture because I believe we need to be in the whole counsel of God. But there are, there are times when I don't get past the first you know, I, admittedly, there are a lot of times when, when I read all of the five chapters a day that I've, that I set out for myself and I, I don't hear anything. So I'm not, I don't want to give you the impression that I hear from God every day. But if I'm not there every day, if I'm not in the Holy of Holies every day, and before I even open the book, and forgive me if this is, if this is something you're practicing already, but I don't just pick up this book and figure I can read it and I'm going to hear from God. The Holy Spirit wrote this book. My dad used to say, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's not going to force himself in on you. And that, as I read the New Testament, that seems to be true of the Holy Spirit. He's waiting to be acknowledged and invited in. And when he comes, he'll reveal every word that Jesus spoke to you. He'll open up the word of God to you like you've never understood it before. So literally, I mean, I've been doing this for, for decades, but I still don't trust myself to have figured out how to hear the voice of God. So when I sit in my favorite recliner in my little study at my house, I open open the Bible up before me to the chapters that I'm going to read that day. And I stop right there and say, Holy Spirit, you penned this. You breathed it through men of old. Please come and breathe it into me right now. And sometimes I don't even get past the first chapter. And a verse will jump out at me in that chapter. In fact, I, I may share a little bit tomorrow night in the prayer meeting, but I, I ran into a verse in Joshua just the other day that just absolutely seemed like the word of the Lord to Westgate Chapel. And I, that's what I led prayer, the prayer meeting with. And, and basically, God is telling Joshua, and I know you, this is familiar to you, so it won't probably have the impact, but, but God says to Joshua, Every place you set your foot, I'm going to give you. And we've been trying to tell the people of Westgate right now, if it's in the business world, if it's in your school, if it's in home, if it's in the neighborhood, if you go walking around the neighborhood, God is saying, every place you set your foot, I'm going to give you. Pray for over that neighbor's house. Pray conviction of the Holy Spirit on the neighbors that you know don't know the Lord. Every place you set your foot, we've not been aggressive enough. We've not pressed in enough because we haven't heard enough. And when we get in his council chamber, we'll start hearing. And when we start hearing, the Holy Spirit can then activate us. Not out of guilt, not out of, you know, i got to do this. No, but because we're hearing his voice. So I, I want to urge you, be like a Samuel. Be like my dad, who carved out time in his life just to draw near, shut everything else. Literally, I have to leave my phone with Rita. Because she has her quiet time later in the morning. I leave my phone with Rita so if there's an emergency, she can answer it. But, but I can't even have my phone in my study with me. And I invite the Holy Spirit, please would you come and illuminate. I want to hear the voice of God. And he will speak to you. He'll speak to you. 
so that like God says in Jeremiah 15, 19, so that when you and I speak, it will be with worthy words and not worthless words. Those worthy words, mom and dads, moms and dads come from his presence. What you speak into your children will come straight out of his presence and will penetrate their hearts like like no other words can do. But you've got to hear, what's God saying? What does God think about your family? What does God think about your future? If you're single, what's God say, saying to you about dating and the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with? I'm so grateful I couldn't have made it without Rita. And God probably brought me to this country because she, he knew she was the only one in the world that could, could put up with me. And so I came all the way from South Africa just to find Rita. Right? But don't make those steps without him. Listen, how, I, we have people at Westgate saying, well, I'm going to Idaho. Because there's not the political problems in Idaho. But guess what? When you get to Idaho, there's going to be problems. Unless God has told you to go to Iowa. And then I'll help you pack. Right? But, but somebody's got to stay in a place like Washington State and put up a fight for what's right and for the kingdom of God. So don't just pack up and go to Montana or Wyoming because it looks more comfortable there. I love... I'm going to close with this. I love... <laughs> we had a lady visiting our church the other day from, from uh, World, World Magazine. I didn't know there was a magazine like that. She'd come to interview us because she heard we'd had Eric Metaxas sharing his testimony in a morning service. She wanted to know why we'd have somebody as controversial as Eric Metaxas. I said, ma'am, he shared his testimony, gave an invitation for salvation. She said, well, I was in your services, and they sound kind of, even your worship courses sound a little militant to me. And I thought, I didn't say this, but I thought, ma'am, have you opened your eyes and looked around you lately? We're in a war. And I love the third of the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings where the king is about to be coronated. But there's a battle to be fought before he's coronated. Some of you have probably seen the movie. I love this one line. The king is on his horse. It's a war horse that knows that the battle is near. It's snorting and stomping the ground. He has just a few soldiers around him. And coming at him from every direction is an unspeakable horde of demonic-looking, demonic powers and forces. And, and these few soldiers with him are looking at the surrounding army and you could tell they're terrified. And he says to the soldiers that are left with him, there may come a day when even brave men run from the fight, but this is not that day. And I want to say to you, First New Testament church and precious pastors who are visiting. There may come a day when even brave pastors and believers are tempted to run from the battle. But we're in a battle for our children and our grandchildren. And there may come a day when some others may run from the fight. But by God's grace, this is not that day. We're going to get close to him. We're going to get so close to him that we hear everything that is on his heart for us and for our families and for our churches and lead the battle until we see Jesus coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Bless the name of the Lord. If you're, if you're in this building tonight, and please don't do this just for me, but if you're in the building tonight, 
and the, the cry of your heart like is in mine right now, just listening to the words I've shared with you. Oh God, put a greater hunger in me for intimacy with you. God, let me draw so close to you like Samuel that I can hear your slightest whisper even when I'm asleep to be awakened from my sleep by the voice of God who knows my name and calls me by name. Let me be attentive to him so that I'm ready to receive from him everything that he wants to give me for the battle that lies ahead. That his name may be glorified. And that we would take our positions on the walls of Zion and give God no rest until his name is glorified in the land once again. That's our charge. That's our responsibility. And by God's grace, we will not flinch from that. And if you're ready just to have a time with the Lord tonight and say, Lord, I desire more intimacy with you. I want to hear your voice. I want to be like Samuel. I want to get close enough to hear. Come and find a place here in the altar. And if the altar fills up, just find a place in the aisles. And just call on the Lord right now. The worship team will lead us. And in just a moment, if it's okay with Pastor Lee, I would love to just pray over you. But just call on the Lord right now. You have a conversation with him. Let him speak into your heart. Let him minister to your heart. Let him pour in his affirmation for you right now. His his love for you. His grace over you that will call you.